Lord Jesus, I want for your word to come to life this morning in our midst. I want for you through your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts. Lord, would we come in a listening posture, desiring to hear what you would have to say. And may you just speak very clearly to us this morning, I pray. Lord, as always, may I decrease and you increase this morning. May your words be heard, not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're, gonna, we're continuing on in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we finished up the Beatitudes last week. Brian uh, spoke and finished up that piece. And I just want to recap a little bit where we've been over the last four weeks. Uh, Jesus, this is his first like big public teaching. He's gone town to town and done some small things, but now there is a massive crowd gathered here with people from kind of every walk of Jewish life, from the lowliest to the, the, the Pharisees and those who, who are in the highest positions, and they've all gathered to hear Jesus teach. And the first thing that he starts with is the Beatitudes. If you remember, what, what does Beatitude mean? Does anybody remember? Blessed are. Okay, it literally means those that are blessed. And he starts by saying, blessed are these kinds of people in the new kingdom that God is ushering in. And he starts by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle or the meek. And it's really countercultural. Not blessed are those who are strong and powerful. But blessed are those who are lowly in his sight. And all of these teachings would have kind of taken these people off guard. He then goes into the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And the people would have been reeling at this. This is not what we've heard before. This is not just the Old Testament thrown back at us. This is something new. And then he goes in and he says, look, you are to be salt and light. You are to be two of the most precious, life-giving things on this earth. That's to represent you. You are to be light in dark places. You are to be salt, a, pres a preservative, a, a flavor enhancer in the world around you. And the, the people in the crowd would have just been going, what do we do? Like, how do we do this? This is like nothing we've ever heard before. This is all brand new. And to be honest, we're going to talk about it here in a minute, there would have been two kind of general responses in the Jewish people. They would have either said, uh-oh, this is new, la, 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 plugged their ears and said, we can't hear it because you're not quoting Moses and so I don't want to hear it. Or they would have gone, sweet, let's throw off the establishment. Let's rise up. And so this next passage that we're going to look at today is Jesus going, look, before we go any further, let me pause and clarify. He would have seen what people were either afraid of or a little too excited to do. And so he takes this next passage and he goes, hold on, hold on, hold on. I want you to hear what I'm saying. Or something really powerful I've learned a couple years ago is the phrase, don't hear what I'm not saying. Like, don't fill in the gaps. Just listen to what I'm saying. And, and this passage is Jesus saying that to his audience. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Listen to me. And so he goes and he says this. 
don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, so let's break this statement down. We're going to start with the first two verses and kind of work our way through. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Again, the Israelites were, were a rebellious people by nature. They had a history of revolt. When, when they felt oppressed, they, they threw off. When they saw a way to free themselves, they took it, and it was usually by force. They were a rebellious people, and Jesus was going, some of you are hearing something new, and you're over there sharpening your sword going, yeah, let's get them. Let's do it. Let's throw off the old ways. And Jesus was cautioning them, slow down. I didn't come to destroy. I didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets. He did not come for rebellion, for rebellion, but instead for fulfillment. He said, I didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets, but I did come to fulfill them. Jesus was reassuring them that God doesn't just change his mind. It's not that I just showed up now and go, hey, remember everything before? Forget it. Let's do something else. He said, God doesn't change his mind. None of these things will just magically go away on their own. Not, not a letter or the smallest stroke of a letter will just disappear. God's promises and God's commands don't just age out. You know what, guys? It's been about 1,500 years. I think we can just forget about all that right now. He was telling them, like, God's word is God's word. And it will never just void itself out. It's been too long. We don't have to worry about that now. God would never just take his covenant with Israel that he had established and just throw it away. That is not the way that our God works. And listen, that is good news for us today. Amen, church? Just like God was faithful to the Israelites, he is faithful to us now. He is still the God that keeps every one of his promises. His word to us now, if you start all the way back in Genesis, is about 3,500 years ago this book started being written. 2,000 years ago it stopped being written. It is good news that God doesn't change. That God doesn't just forget his promises and forget his commands and go, I decided to go a different way. That is not the way that our God works, and that is good news for us. And Jesus was reassuring the Israelite people of the same thing. God doesn't just change his mind and throw out what he said. I haven't come to destroy that. But here's something we have to get our head around. But I did come to fulfill it. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. And then at the end, nothing will pass away until all things 
are accomplished. God's word never just passes away or loses its effectiveness. But Jesus was telling him this old covenant, there will come a point when it is fulfilled, when it is done and when it is over. There will come a point when all things are accomplished and it will pass away. What were Jesus' last words when he was on the cross? After Father forgive them, he said, it is finished. The work is done. It is completed. It is accomplished. You see, the Old Testament covenant was never meant to last forever. Real quick, a little explanation. I'm going to use the word testament and covenant kind of interchangeably. It's because they're the exact same word. The Hebrew word is covenant. We sometimes use the word testament, which is like a thousand years later in old German. It got translated. Testament is just a translation of the word covenant. We have the New and the Old Testament in our Bibles, right? A a more clear explanation. Originally, when these were written, it was the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Real quick, church, help me understand this. What is a covenant? I'm going to use the word a lot today, and I need to make sure we're on the same page. What is a covenant? A contract? Okay. An agreement, a contract, what else? A promise? Okay. We don't use this word a ton today. It's kind of almost just been relegated to biblical thinking. But this word covenant, it was a legal document. It was... Typically, when this kind of covenant was set up, a much stronger kingdom would come to a much weaker kingdom, and they would go, all right, here's how this is going to work. Here's what I expect from you. You're going to serve. You're going to give me this. You're going to give me that. And in response, I won't wipe you out. Yay, we made a covenant. This would happen all the time between a much stronger nation and a weaker nation. And in in the Old Testament, we have God, who is the much stronger one, right? Amen? Come on, church. Come on, church. God is the much stronger party, right? Coming to Israel, but instead of going, here's what you give me and here's what I get out of it, he comes to them and he goes, I'm going to make a covenant with you. We're going to join ourselves together, but this would have been brand new. But here's what you get out of it. Here is the blessings that come your way. I'm actually going to make this covenant at great expense to myself so that you can be blessed. God God made this beautiful promise to these people. And here's what the covenant essentially says. Here's what you can expect from God, and here's what God expects from you. It was an understanding of here's how we're going to relate to each other. And God, in his infinite wisdom, went, I will never break my end, so we don't need to worry about that, but here's what you're going to do when you break your end, because you're going to break your end. So then he, this whole sacrificial system came up. And have you ever read the book of Leviticus? Ooh. He covers about every different instance. When you sin in this way, this is how you do it. When you sin in this way, this is how you do it. He came knowing that the people would be unfaithful, but still made a way for them. So he sets up this covenant, this agreement of here's how we're going to interact with one another. But his old covenant, the Old Testament agreement, was never meant to last forever. It it was always pointing towards something greater. There is all kinds of instances in the Old Testament. We're going to read one out of Jeremiah chapter 31, 
where God says, remember, one day this will go away because I got something new and better coming for you. In Jeremiah 31, it says this, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is 600 years before Jesus came. And God was already going, there's going to come a time when we're going to put this old one away because I got something new for you. And Jesus was now standing in front of this large crowd and essentially saying, I am the fulfillment of the old covenant. I am going to fulfill all of its promises. And in fact, I'm even going to fulfill all of its requirements because you couldn't do it. The way that God called you to live, you were unable to do, so I'm going to come and do it for you so that I can fulfill the law and put it to bed. This would have been a difficult thing for them to hear. If you understand, like if you're able to think through a first century Jewish lens, when you read the Gospels, it's not hard to see why they killed Jesus. Sometimes at 21st century people, we read and we go, Jesus, he was just a good teacher. He did miracles. He helped people. Why would they ever kill him? He continually said, look, everything you know, I've come to put an end to because God has something new. This was an incredible threat to them, to those who had power because of it, and to those who just feared change in general. This would have been a threatening thing. I have come to fulfill the law. A day was coming when he would put the law to bed and replace it with something far superior. The author of Hebrews in chapter 8 says this. He's, he's comparing the law of Moses to the work of Jesus. And here's what he says. In fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises... For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. And then he quotes Jeremiah 31, which we just read. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. The author of Hebrews was going, okay, look, how do I help you understand how good the new covenant is compared to the old one? And so he goes, how about this? How much better is Jesus than Moses? We tell Moses' story, right? Moses has an incredible story, and there's so much we can learn from the story of Moses. But who do we pray to? Come. Sunday school answer. I go through this every single time, okay? It swings from a tree. It eats bananas. It has a tail. What is it? It's Jesus. We're in church. It's always Jesus. He was trying to say, like, look, the new covenant, this, this new way God deals with us is so far superior to the old, it's like comparing Jesus to Moses. Moses was a good dude. 
and God used him in incredible ways for a time. Jesus is God himself and lives forever. The two are not even comparable. And he says this new covenant that Jesus is coming to usher in, it's as far above the old one as Jesus is above Moses. Are you guys catching this? Then he goes on to say, listen, in fact, this old covenant, the promises and commands of the old covenant, the author of Hebrews says, are now obsolete and outdated. This is a tough one for us. I'm going to deal with it here in a minute. But the laws and the commandments, because of the finished work of Jesus, are now obsolete. And listen, this is good news. Have you ever tried to catch a dove? No. Then I'm guessing you've also never had to sacrifice that dove because of something you've done. Horrible, messy business, and sheep, and goats, and rams, and all of these different things. It is good news that we have been set free from the commandments of the old covenant. Amen? It was, it was a difficult business. It was a terrible business. And God has made a way for us to interact with him in a new way. The old covenant is obsolete. But again, Jesus was trying to tell them, like, look, we're not just coming to trash that old thing because God doesn't like it anymore. But we are coming to fulfill it and to put it away. Once a covenant or a contract is fulfilled, I'll get to you one second, bud, it's no longer valid. If you go right now into AT&T and you sign a two-year contract, for the next two years, you have to pay them money and they have to give you service, right? After that, if you decide to go somewhere else, they don't get to go, hey, no fair. The contract is ended. It's void. It, it's, it no longer has hold over either one of us. And Jesus was saying the same thing. There will come a time when this old covenant is fulfilled and put aside. Go ahead, Maverick. Sure. Question I don't have time for this morning. Why didn't God just skip the old covenant and go straight to the new covenant? Here's the very, very short answer, because he knows better than I do. I look at it and I go, Jesus, wouldn't it have been more efficient if you just showed up in the beginning and we didn't have to do all of this? But there is so, like, listen, I am in no way trying to throw out <laughs> the Old Testament. There is so much richness. There is so much for us to learn about the character and the graciousness of God. About the kind of, of faith and courageousness that he, he calls his people to live. All that I know is this, I trust his timing and that his timing is perfect. So the old covenant was there. God had a very specific reason for it. Man, you, you can read through the book of Galatians. Paul talks about how the covenant was kind of our caretaker until we were ready for the new covenant. There, there was something about us that just wasn't ready for this new one yet. Maybe we had to learn the hard way as mankind. We had to try it ourselves to clean ourselves up until we finally learned we can't do it. We need help. If he would have come earlier, would we not? I don't know. But I trust God's timing that at the proper time, Jesus came to die for us. I, I trust God's timing in that. So that is a great question and one that I don't have a clear answer to, except I trust him. Just the fact that the, the old covenant is obsolete, is, is put away, doesn't mean that it was bad, doesn't mean that it didn't serve its purpose. It simply means that it's done and it's no longer valid. 
the entirety of the Old Testament pointed toward Jesus and he was telling the people that he was now here to close the book on the old way and open the book on the new. And for those that got it, this was great news. A little side note on this. We have to be careful as new covenant believers how we handle the old covenant. There's a really dangerous thing that, that many are tempted to do, and it's cherry pick certain parts of the old covenant that we kind of like or seem useful to us and try to bring them into the new, and it doesn't work like that. The, the author of Hebrews, in that passage that we read before, said, look, like we, we try to grab onto some of the old promises from the Old Testament and, and bring them into the new. And the author of Hebrews says that's silliness because the new covenant is established, he says, on better promises. As far as Jesus is above Moses, so are the new promises above the old promises. He says, leave them in the past. What, what we often try to do, if we're not careful, is bring some of the old into the new. And we try to take these like national promises that God made and we hyper-spiritualize them and try to make them just for me. And, and that's a really dangerous thing. Back in the old covenant, God was a nation builder. He said, I have a preferred nation, a preferred people group, the Jewish people, that I am trying to raise up as an example. And so he promised prosperity and he promised health and safe borders and wealth and all of this stuff to this entire nation. But now when we come into the new covenant, God's no longer using national language. He's using individual language. I've come to call a people from actually every tribe, tongue, and nation to walk with me. I'm no longer settling for just this one small country over here. I want people from everywhere. And so his promises change, and now they become about your specific heart, your faithfulness, your life. In the old covenant, it was, if the nation goes this way, I'll bless the whole nation. And listen, that meant the wicked got blessed right along with the righteous. Or if the nation goes this way, Here's the punishment I will bring. And that means the righteous got punished right along with the wicked. God was making national promises because was, he was a nation builder. Now he's a father. And he says, I will deal with each one of you according to your needs. No, no longer just these big kind of blanket promises. I want to come and I want to know you specifically. I want to walk with you specifically. That passage in Jeremiah where he says, no longer will each of us need to like be talked into loving the Lord because we will each individually love the Lord. He will be my God and your God, and we will be his people. Not just he will be the God of America, and so by definition, we're, we're all his people. It's so much more beautiful and personal than that. So we have to be careful not to bring some of these Old Testament promises or commands into the New Testament, it leads to divisiveness and judgment. It leads to, honestly, pride and arrogance. But people would say, and I've heard it said, and it's a valid question, but isn't the Old Testament still the inspired word of God? Right? Yes. Listen. Every word in this book is the inspired word of God. The, uh, Peter talks about in 2 Peter, he says that men wrote it as God through his spirit moved them to write the words he wanted them to write. 
Paul tells Timothy, the word of God, the entire thing is God-breathed, inspired by him, ordained to be written. Yes, it is all the inspired word of God, but is it all equally applicable to us? Again, have you ever caught a dove and sacrificed it for your sin? No, and praise the Lord, but doesn't the inspired word of God say that that's what's to happen under the old covenant? Yes, it does. Thank the Lord, because of Jesus' sacrifice, we're set free from it. This is all the inspired word of God, but the question is what's applicable for us as new covenant believers? Listen, we, we can learn a ton in the Old Testament about the character of God. We can learn as we, as we read. I, I shared a few, probably five weeks ago, one of my favorite stories of David and Mephibosheth, an old covenant story, but how it inspired my faith and my devotion to my Lord. We can learn from the character, faith, and courage of the Old Testament characters. We can learn from their disobedience even, but we are not called to act as they act or honestly even believe as they believed. We've been given a new covenant. Is this making sense, church? It's dangerous to start to bring the old into the new because it leads to some, they can feel harmless on the surface, but they have some real danger to them. Some things like Christian nationalism, where we basically just replace the word Israel in the Old Testament with America. And we go, God is going to bless our nation like he's going to bless... He hasn't made those promises to us. God doesn't work in preferred nations anymore and us against them. It has led to some of the greatest atrocities that we've ever seen in human history and the church was behind them typically using old covenant military language. And now it's things that we look at hundreds of years later and go, I can't believe that happened. It leads to this us versus them. Israel had enemies and they were to go and fight their enemies and if we start to bring that into the new, all of a sudden, do I fight my enemies or do I pray blessings over my enemies? Because I can't really do both. Do I forgive or do I avenge? I can't really do both. When we start to bring the old into the new, we actually replace it. And we're told it's inferior, it's obsolete. Let it go. Learn from it, but don't act like it. We, we try to cherry pick some of these and bring them in and it leads to some dangerous places that we have to be so careful of. And listen, I am patriotic. I absolutely love America, living in America, the rights and privileges that I have because I live in America, but I don't for one second believe that God loves or blesses me more than he does the person on the backside of Africa because I'm an American or that he wants something different or better for me because I'm an American. You will not find that in the new covenant. We have to be so careful. It will lead to things like the prosperity gospel. Listen, when God was nation building, he said, listen, if you follow me, you will have wealth. Because he was talking to the whole nation, and I'm trying to raise you up. And so you will have health and wealth and safe borders and expanding territory. In the New Testament, what we're told is if you follow me, Here's the promise made to every single believer. You'll suffer. 
Brian last week, talked, the last beatitude is, listen, when you are persecuted, when you follow me, you will suffer persecution. Things will be hard. Some days you'll have plenty, and some days you won't think you'll have enough. Look at Jesus. Look at the disciples and the lives that they lived. It was not this like healthy, wealthy, everything was going great all the time thing. Where does that come from? Trying to bring the old covenant into the new. And then when suffering hits, we go, what the heck, God? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you make everything okay? Because in the new covenant, he doesn't promise to make our circumstances okay. He promises to be enough for us in the midst of our difficult circumstances. This is what John preached two weeks ago. Those are new covenant ideas. And this is hard, but they're better than the old covenant. Are you, guys, are you understanding where I'm going with this? Is this making sense? And you see the danger in trying to bring that old into the new. We have new promises we have a new way of interacting with God, and it is a beautiful gift. Let's not fall back to the old. Okay, that wasn't exactly what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount, but that was bringing in what Paul and the author of Hebrews would say, and so we kind of went roundabout, and we're coming back to where we are. Let me read this passage again from Matthew 5. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill for I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Let me ask you another question, church. When he says these commands, what commands is he talking about? The Old Testament? Okay, like the, the law and the prophets, the Ten Commandments, that kind of thing, okay? Is there any other option? I think it's Is he talking about these commands, the ones that he just taught and the ones that he is going to teach going forward? Here, here's the thing, we don't know. This has been debated for a long, long time, which commands Jesus was talking about. Was he saying, look, if you break the commands I'm giving right now, you'll be least in the kingdom of heaven? Or, or, or if you fulfill these commands, you'll be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Talking about the Beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount? Or was he saying, if you break the commands of the law and the prophet, you'll be least? We don't know. Sometimes we don't know because neither one really makes sense. This one we don't know because both actually can make perfect sense. And so I want to kind of just deal with both really, really quickly here. If Jesus was talking about his commands that he was giving right then, this, again, it's no wonder they killed him. Because who can give new commands? God. The only one that could change the covenant was the one that made the covenant. So if he was talking about his commands, people would have heard him saying, I am the Lord. And I'm giving you new commands. And if you break these commands, you will be least. But if you uphold the commands that I'm giving you right now, you will be the greatest. And listen, this is not absurd for Jesus to have said. Uh, seven chapters later in Matthew chapter 12, he stands publicly and he says, hey, you guys know Jonah, that story you love to tell and that prophet you love? I'm better than him. Hey, you know Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived? I'm greater than him. 
Hey, you know the temple? That thing that like is the, your most precious place? One greater than the temple is here right now. Jesus had no problem going, I am greater than your old covenant. And just saying it very blatantly. And so that could be what he was saying here. Hold to my commands. These beatitudes, and he's going to then go into what we'll look in the next couple months is, you've heard it said, and he'll quote something from the Old Testament, but I tell you, and he gives a new way to approach it. This would have been an incredibly racy thing to say at the time. People would have been shocked when they heard this. The other way to look at it is if Jesus was saying, okay, look, the law and the prophets, I haven't come to destroy them. There will come a day when I fulfill them, when I accomplish them, but don't start throwing them off early. Again, remember, he was speaking to a rebellious people who if they heard Jesus and were going, I like this guy, I like what he stands for, man, what he says just feels right in my heart, many of them would have gone, let's go burn a synagogue. And it sounds silly, but I'm not joking. They were, they were ready to fight. They were ready to throw off. It had been ingrained in them for hundreds of years. And there was a chance that this was a powder keg getting lit. And so Jesus was going, whoa, 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 but all things are not accomplished yet. And so until they are, keep the law of the prophets. There was many times when Jesus would be teaching. At one point he even says, look, like, hey, the Pharisees, don't do what they do. They're a terrible example, but listen to what they say. Because to honor them is to honor God. And so he was saying, don't throw off the law and the, and the prophets yet. It's not time for that. It hasn't been accomplished yet. Jesus would heal people, and then he would tell them, now go to the temple and be ritually cleansed. Now go to the temple and offer whatever sacrifices are necessary. He was backing up the law and the prophets even while he was accomplishing it. And so one way that many read this is that he was going, it's not time for that yet. If you just heard me say it will be accomplished and it will be fulfilled and go away, hold on. We are still called to submit to it and honor it as long as it's the covenant that's in place. We tend to be, much like Israel, a rebellious people looking to throw off, looking for something new and fresh, something that's easier and feels better. Rob Reamer says this in the book Soul Care. He says, there is no freedom in rebellion, only in submission to the king. Jesus was telling them, you're hearing something new and you're getting excited, but it's not time for rebellion. I didn't come to destroy. Continue to live out the law and the prophets until all things are fulfilled. As soon as Jesus is resurrected, we have no other instance of any of his disciples or whatever healing someone and going, okay, now go to the priests and go do, they were like, you're free in Jesus' name. There's a new way of doing things. Things shifted after Jesus' death and resurrection. But one way to read this is Jesus was going, let's press pause. Don't throw off too early. This is making sense. I'm getting a lot of blank stares out there. Okay. I'm just going to tell myself it's because it's hitting so hard. You guys don't know how to react. I love it. So Jesus then goes on to say probably the most shocking statement of the entire thing. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So remember what I said, who is in the crowd at this time? Everybody, what does that mean? There, it, was, it was all Jews that we know of at the time. What, like what were some, what would they do for a living? Oh, I listed a couple earlier, come on. You guys were paying attention, right? Go ahead, Maverick. What? Yeah? Like, what would they have done for a living? <laughs> That's okay. We would have had, there would have been some tax collectors, fishermen, carpenters, shepherds, farmers, Pharisees. So imagine most of the crowd, how would they have looked? Probably been pretty dirty and smelly. Let's be honest. They didn't get vacation days. where They probably left work that morning to go and hear Jesus talk. They wouldn't have looked the best, smelled the best. How do you think your typical Pharisee looked when they walked into a room? Real good. They bathed regularly. They had very specific clothing that set them apart from everyone else. And so imagine this crowd now. There's thousands of people sitting there, and you have, for the most part, the unwashed masses... And Jesus goes, look, I got to tell you who might not make it. And they would have been like, he's going to say fishermen. I know it. No one wants to be around a shepherd. I smell like sheep all the time. He's going to say me. And he goes, the cleanest people here. The people who know the law better than anyone else. The people who do all the things that you're supposed to do Unless you're more righteous than them, you will not even enter the kingdom of heaven. What thought would have gone through their mind when he calls out the Pharisees and the scribes, the most religious among them? I'm done for. This is impossible. Who can be more righteous than them? This is literally their job, is to be righteous. And Jesus says, only someone more righteous than them. They would have said, this is completely impossible. And listen, I think this is exactly what Jesus wanted them to think. I think he wanted them to hear this and go, oh no, why am I even here? He was setting them up for everything that comes next. When he goes, I'm going to redefine what righteousness actually means. You need to be more righteous than the Pharisees, but not because you need to try harder than them, but because they're trying in the exact wrong direction. The way that the religious leaders treated spirituality was as if it was from the outside in. Do all the right things. Let people see that you do all the right things and God will be happy. So just make sure that you're, that you're clean, Make sure that you tithe at the right time, that you always go and give your sacrifices. There was all of this doing, and that was all they taught. We know, if you're, if you're familiar with the Gospels at all, that their hearts were wicked. It was all just action so that they could be praised by men because they, they loved walking into a room and having people go, oh, they're here. They loved it. And so it was all about this outward action and Jesus was coming to go, that is not how the kingdom works. 
Remember, when you go back to the Beatitudes, he didn't say, blessed are those who do all of this. He named all of these internal qualities. Those who are poor in spirit, who are meek and humble. Those who are peacemakers. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are pure of heart. It was all this internal talk, which is why they would have been shocked by it, because everything else was just do this. On, every seven days we do this, every, then we have this feast. It was all this outward stuff, and Jesus was going there completely missing it. Later, he would call them whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, but on the inside, you're just full of bones and death. In Matthew 23, Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also become clean. Jesus was going, look, in my new kingdom, it's not about doing the right thing. It's not about looking good. It's about having your heart cleansed. A New Testament word that's constantly used is about having your heart transformed, made into something new. If we miss that, I don't care what you do. I don't care how faithfully you show up to church. I don't care how faithfully you tithe, how faithfully you serve. If your heart has not been made clean by Jesus Christ, none of it matters. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees did all of the right things, but their hearts remained unchanged. Jesus says, you clean the inside and the outside will be clean. He has come to change hearts, not actions. Now listen, are there going to be good deeds that come and good works that flow? Yes. Again, Brian taught last week where Jesus said, let all men see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. But what is the source of those good deeds? It is Jesus. He, someone gets it. Sunday school answer. Love it. My heart has been transformed by Jesus. Now I can't help but live out these good works. It's not this striving and earning. See, God, look how good I am. It's instead, I want to be so close to you and so much like you that the more time I spend with you, the more my life is changed. And I begin almost naturally to be gentle and humble and patient and loving and kind and good. Not because I was working really hard for those things, but because the closer I draw to you, the more those come out. The fruits of the Spirit. Jesus would teach over in John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you cling to me, I will bear fruit through you. The Pharisees went the exact opposite way. Bear all of this fruit and then bring it to God and go see what we did for you. And he says it's completely unacceptable. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom Jesus came to introduce wasn't about appearance, but it was about transformation. Again, let's look in the Old Covenant, pointing back towards Jesus in Ezekiel 36. God promises them, he says, a day is coming when I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. It's not about doing the right things. 
It's about coming to Jesus and going, will you take my heart of stone and will you give me a heart of flesh? I, I can't earn it. There's nothing I can do good enough to bring it to you and you go, okay, fine, you get a pass. Unless you, through Jesus' death and resurrection on my behalf, unless you take my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh, unless you put your spirit in me, I can't follow your ways. I can't keep your laws. We're going to transition to a time of communion um, and and we'll have opportunity for prayer uh, if you need to respond in that way. One of the elders will meet you over here. But as we come to communion, I want you to think about that last passage that Jesus taught. We come to communion to celebrate what Jesus has done, this new righteousness that we've been given. Second uh, Corinthians 5, 16 and 21 say this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not a righteousness that we produce on our own, but a righteousness that we receive because God is gracious towards us. And so before we come to communion, I always ask us to pause and to reflect and allow God to examine our hearts. But I'm going to give a, a, a specific question to ask. As, as we come to communion, I want you to ask this question before God. Lord, when I come and I celebrate communion, I celebrate the fact that I get to have relationship with you. Do I come in my own righteousness? Do I get to come up here because I've been so good this week? Or listen, this will tell you something. Have I struggled this week? And that's causing me to hesitate. I don't know if I should even come up here. If that is the case, you are depending on your own righteousness and it will fail you. Or instead, do I come up here in humility and thanksgiving and boldness because I've been invited in by what you've done? His righteousness given to me, his heart given to me. Now, communion becomes a celebration. Not a coming going, man, I hope I did enough. But a Jesus, I know you've done enough. And now I get to come and celebrate with you. So I'm going to ask you, just where you're seated, before you come up, just to take a moment. Lord, is this based on my righteousness or yours? We know the answer. But Lord, would you show me what's really going on in my own heart? So let's spend a moment.